You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The pandemic is not over, but as it eases, we find ourselves considering its long-term societal effects. These can last long after a virus or a bacterial disease recede. Historically, infectious disease has had massive consequences for society. The episodes of plague that struck the Roman Empire have been blamed for causing its collapse. Other epidemics, such as polio, for example, did not leave much of a mark despite being thoroughly terrifying. A major thing to always keep in mind is that epidemic diseases are not just interchangeable causes of death and suffering, that each has its own particular biology and its relationship to the society that it's afflicting. And so it shouldn't surprise us that they also have different effects. Bacterial and viral threats from the 14th century plague to smallpox and AIDS, unpredictable and largely unstoppable, have reshaped society. We'll hear how and where COVID-19 might fit in. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and this is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, we take a look at epidemics of the past as we consider our path forward. This is After the Plague. The pandemic is not ended. Countries in South Asia and elsewhere are battling outbreaks and scrambling for vaccines. But we are at an inflection point. We do have vaccines, after all, and millions of people have been vaccinated more every day. And some countries are taking those long-awaited baby steps back to normal. It feels like the right time for a big-picture reflection. Around this time last year, I emailed Frank Snowden at Yale University with a request for an interview that I knew we'd want eventually. The pandemic had just started, and I was reading his new book about how epidemics change society. The timing of its publication, just a few months before, was eerie. The name of the book is Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present. And Dr. Snowden's vivid description of how disease has had the power to reshape society on so many levels— from politics to art, suggested that if our pandemic continued, well, it would do the same. Dr. Snowden emailed me back right away, agreeing to the interview, but he said there was no rush to do it because he wrote, COVID is not going away in the foreseeable future. That was in the spring of 2020. And he was right, of course. Because he had a good feeling for how these things play out. A professor emeritus of history, and more specifically the history of medicine, Dr. Snowden has traced the trajectory of scores of epidemics, including the plague, smallpox, Asiatic cholera, malaria, yellow fever, HIV, AIDS, polio, and the 1918 flu. When you enumerate them like that, you realize that infectious disease is a recurring danger. We emailed Frank Snowden again a few weeks ago after the COVID vaccinations were underway, and we arranged the interview, which makes up this episode. One of his central questions is why some diseases, such as the Black Death and smallpox, profoundly changed society, while others, such as polio and the Spanish flu, didn't. And we wondered where he might rank COVID. I think that COVID is likely to be in the category that's going to affect society profoundly first because it already has. The world has reached another grim milestone in the history of the coronavirus pandemic. 
According to figures from Johns Hopkins University, COVID-19 deaths have passed the 3 million mark. And we've seen extraordinary the impact that it's had on the economy. A new survey by the Pew Research Center found 43% of U.S. adults say they or someone in their household has lost a job or taken a cut in pay due to COVID-19. And on social inequalities and bringing forth disparities and ranking them obvious to everyone within our society. We have with COVID-19 things that we've seen with other diseases, a clear-cut racial and ethnic disparity where African-Americans, Latinx, American Indians, Alaskan Natives, and Pacific Islanders suffered disproportionately. Uh, so it's hard to believe that a disease will suddenly, particularly when it's had those impacts, that it won't leave a lasting effect. Of course, it's too soon to know for certain the long-term legacy of the pandemic, but we can at least consider how COVID might leave its mark on individuals and on nations as we look at the connections between epidemics and societal change in the past. To begin, one of the things that Dr. Snowden says determines whether disease leaves a profound mark or not is whether the outbreak was long-lasting, extending over months or years, as was the case with the three major epidemics of the plague in Europe or cholera in Asia, an infectious disease that passes through society quickly, as Spanish flu did in 1918, when public attention was on the Great War, does not leave an indelible mark. He explains the other factors. It also relates to the ideas that people have in their minds about the disease and what causes it. And that can partly be a factor of whether it's familiar. And the Spanish influenza, people thought, oh, it's just flu. This is something we all know about. And so it didn't seem terrifying in the way that a sudden surprise like bubonic plague when it first appeared, or Asiatic cholera when it first appeared, that was completely beyond human experience. And it seemed also uh, that in both of those instances, there was the sense that perhaps this had to do with some sort of nefarious activity within the society. Let me pick up on the idea you said about plague, bubonic plague being terrifying. And part of the terror was society didn't know where it came from. It sort of just appeared because this was before germ theory. Can you give us a sense, though, of what plague did when it arrived, how it arrived, and the different ways in which it was terrifying, one of them certainly being how it killed people? Uh, yes, the plague seemed custom-made for spreading panic and terror, true also of Asiatic cholera. First is that, as you were saying, the symptoms are particularly gruesome. It drives people essentially insane and demented. And if you read Daniel Defoe, he talks about people, uh, such was the agony they were in, hurling themselves into the Thames. I heard of one infected creature who, running out of his bed in his shirt in the anguish and agony of his swellings, of which he had three upon him, got his shoes on and went to put on his coat. But the nurse resisting and snatching the coat from him, he threw her down, ran over her, ran downstairs and into the street, directly to the Thames in his shirt, and plunged into the Thames. And it struck people suddenly, so that this could be a public spectacle. This is true also of Asiatic cholera. The sudden onset and then the symptoms of the disease are dehumanizing, disfiguring, people being transformed so that they don't look as they used to, and they also are undergoing excruciating pain. 
It would pierce the hearts of all that came by to hear the piteous cries of those infected people, who being thus out of their understandings by the violence of their pain or the heat of their blood, were either shut in or perhaps tied in their beds and chairs to prevent their doing themselves hurt. That's not true, for example, with the Spanish influenza. It did have a sudden onset, but most people then simply took to their beds, had some discomfort, coughing, and so on. But unless it became a very severe case, uh, which it was, case, it was complemented by pneumonia, but that was only a small proportion of the people who were afflicted. And that's another part of the equation, which is the mortality rate, the percentage of those who afflicted who died, whereas in the Spanish influenza, it's less than 4%, whereas for Asiatic cholera, it was 50-60%, and the same for bubonic plague. So that was part of the terror as well. Now, you said that people didn't know where it came from, plague. Did they understand that it was linked to rats if they didn't understand that it was linked to <laughs> the fleas or the bacterium and the fleas on rats? Right. Uh, well, they actually had a different a view of what was causing it, which related to miasmatic theory. And that is, it's a poisoning of the atmosphere. And so it's for this reason that the plague costumes, I guess the ancestors of our PPE, had a long beak and people put herbs that gave off an aromatic smell to poison the air around them, or they set off cannon thinking the sulfur would purify the atmosphere. And the idea also of the PPE of the era, which was a, a waxed costume that physicians and healthcare people wore, is that they thought there were some atoms in the air that clung, if you imagine, we think of going into a smoky bar and the cigarette smoke would cling to your sweater, let us say, or other garments. And they thought this was, it was rather akin to that. So if you had a wax garment, the poisonous atoms wouldn't be able to cling to the vestment. And that actually turns out to be partially true, not in that way, but fleas don't cling so very well to a waxed garment. And empirically, it had some good effect, although the mechanism was entirely different. And the mechanism wasn't worked out until the early 20th century that the nexus of rats and fleas was finally understood. And all through those centuries, from the 14th century until the 20th century, it was a disease that was very mysterious to everyone, including the scientific community. Which heightens the terror of the disease, as you said. Uh, you yes. mentioned Daniel Defoe, of course, the author of Robinson Crusoe, but you're referring to his book, A Journal of a Plague Year, uh, in which, while writing in the 18th century, he described the Great Plague of London in the 17th century. And you said that his descriptions revealed that this disease plague broke the bonds of humanity. And how did it do that? And as we reflect on the mark that epidemics leave, did those bonds heal again? Right. The first question is a uh, part of the question is easier to answer than the second, because we have contemporary writers writing about the breaking of the bonds. And that manifested itself if you read Boccaccio's beginning of the Decameron. You see his terrible description of Florence during a plague in the 14th century. And there are other writers, of course, and Defoe in the 1600s. Then the breaking of the bonds is that people were so terrified 
that they were unwilling to stay to tend to their relatives. And so both Boccaccio and Defoe write of the fact that spouses deserted one another, parents deserted their children, that everyone with resources would fly to escape a community and flee to the countryside or some other place of safety. This scourge had implanted so great a terror in the hearts of men and women that brothers abandoned brothers, uncles their nephews, sisters their brothers, and in many cases wives deserted their husbands. But even worse and almost incredible was the fact that fathers and mothers refused to nurse and assist their own children as though they did not belong to them. And these writings uh, are much more eloquent about what happened to tear people asunder. And they don't write about what happened afterwards and what happened when the cities resumed life, as we would say today, went back to normal. And if people were able to restore, it seems to me that kind of rupture is probably difficult to heal because of its searing psychological impact. Uh, the relationship with your spouse who's just left you to die alone is probably not likely to be ever the same again. And that so, would have been driven by fear, just sheer yes. terror of catching the plague. You know, Frank, as you describe this, I'm reflecting on what COVID did to families, where families were isolated, but not by choice. You know, where the loved ones would go into the hospital to die, but... <laughs> But, you, but the family wanted to be with them and they were not allowed to be with them. So there was a kind of an abandonment, but it was not, it was not one that anyone wanted. Yes, that's a different matter, I believe, from someone leaving you and saying, this is not my problem, bye. Um, <laughs> that's a, a sort of different and has a different psychological impact. But of course, you're right. It seems as though one of the lasting legacies is of many of these pandemics is mental illness. And we can see that in COVID through the astonishing rise in suicides, in addiction rates, in domestic violence rates, in anxiety, the consumption of medications to treat people for depression. All of that seems to be a really very big part of the legacy is likely to be of COVID-19. And I think that will lead to a transformation in public health in which physical health is not given an exclusive priority over mental health because mental health problems are likely to be with us for a very long time for just the sorts of reasons that you're talking about, this isolation this lack of connectedness with community, uh, with family, the experience of people dying alone, away from their loved ones, being unable in some cases and in many countries to honor the people once they have died because people can't attend funerals and all the rest of it. So yes, these have a lasting psychological problem. And so I suspect that if Defoe and Boccaccio had written about their communities afterwards, I think they would have painted a very somber picture of how long it took to come back together and all of the psychological problems that were associated with that. And I think to get at that, we can do so by other writers like Shakespeare 
or by painters like Bruegel, The Victory of Death, I think they're portraying, let's say, uh, Shakespeare in Macbeth or in uh, King Lear, because Shakespeare lived through plague in London. And I believe that those plays of his later years are descriptions of the psychological landscape that he saw around him in which bonds had been broken down. That's what King Lear is all about. And I think that that is profound indication of probably it's not a million miles away from what people are experiencing today, this dark, depressed, uh, lonely aftermath that the disease leaves in its wake. And it's interesting that you bring up art because those descriptions of how art responded to epidemics that you describe in your book, I thought were just fascinating. And and once you're aware of the profound effects that disease has on society, then you see the references to it everywhere in the art of the time. You mentioned Shakespeare and, of course, plague, uh, the word plague, references to plague, a plague on, your, on both your houses, <laughs> finds its way all through Shakespeare's work. And just imagine the resonance of a plague on your house if you'd lived through a plague. That really meant something that it doesn't any longer to us. Well, imagine, Seth, if you didn't know how plague was spread and you wondered if it could be caused by someone casting a spell in the form of a curse or something, um, that would be terrifying to hear a plague upon your houses. I think that Professor Snowden mentioned the two things that really got to the folks during the, you know, the plague were, one, that it was so sudden, and two, as you mentioned, you don't know where it came from. So, yeah, maybe it was my next door neighbor, you know, wishing ill on me. Something else that is included in Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year, which Professor Snowden did not mention, but that I think will interest you, is he talks about the appearance of a comet several months before the plague struck. They, did, they didn't know what comets were. They thought there was something in the atmosphere. But they took them as omens for things that might be bad. And, you know, not so much before this plague hit. In 1066, it was the famous Battle of Hastings, and uh, you know where King Harold II was uh, facing off against Will the Conqueror and lost. And the comet, a comet, uh, in fact, it was Halley's comet, appeared in the sky, and people thought something, something awful is going to happen here. And indeed, it was awful if you were King Harold. Coming up, do you know the Italian word upon which the term quarantine is based, and how those first quarantines came about? Also, we'll hear how HIV-AIDS, a plague that continues today, first made its mark on art. A look at the legacies of epidemics. This episode is After the Plague on Big Picture Science. As we consider how epidemics have changed society, we learned that the plague was one of the well, top culprits, really. Some consider it the first pandemic. And there were multiple outbreaks of the plague. You know, these are all in the last two millennia. And after all, cities had grown to the size where, you know, a disease could become a pandemic. There were lots of people living next to one another with very little sanitation. 
The 14th century bubonic plague, which lasted four years, is also known as the Black Death, wiped out roughly a third to maybe a half of Europe's population. We don't know the exact fraction. It was truly terrifying because it arrived suddenly and without apparent reason. And on that point, Seth, one of the things that fascinated me reading Frank Snowden's book about how epidemics have changed society is his description of the rise of plague saints and plague saint cults. Are you familiar with them? Have you ever heard of a plague saint cult? Well, no, I don't think I could even pronounce a plague saint cult. What was it? Here's an example. Have you seen the images of St. Sebastian in Renaissance and Baroque art? He's often depicted wearing a loincloth and his body is pierced with arrows. Yeah, I've seen this guy. The arrows are really distinctive. Well, he became a plague saint. Devotion to him was a response to the plague and a means that people felt they had for protecting themselves from the disease. Yeah, that may seem a bit outdated, but, you know, people will latch on to any explanation for what's going on. And in modern times, they'll even reject science as they find some other reason for whatever's afflicting them. Well, in this part of the interview, historian Frank Snowden describes how those plague cults arose in medieval times. We talked about naturalistic explanations of disease. We're talking about rats, fleas, and their nexus, and understanding disease in that manner. But there was also a supernatural understanding of disease that we still have with us today. People can hold these two ideas in their minds at the same time and move back and forth to one or the other, or they can hold just one of them. So people's ideas are very, as we all know, very complicated. But what was true, certainly for the time of the plague, was there wasn't a naturalistic explanation of how the plague originated and was transmitted, or it wasn't a very satisfying explanation that scientists tried to produce. And so people were thrown back on another cultural resource, which was religion. And the idea that this was a divine intervention because human beings in some way had angered God. And so you see processions of flagellants whipping themselves to rites of repentance in the time of the plague. And you also see this rise of devotion to plague saints. The idea is that human beings must repent, but they also need someone higher than themselves to intercede with God and to beg his mercy on people. And St. Sebastian is so telling because he's a Christ-like figure. He's invariably portrayed as a young, very handsome man, sometimes with his arms stretched out as if they were on the cross. And the symbol for plague in many people's minds, and this goes all the way back to Homer and the beginning of the Iliad, where you see Apollo shooting his arrows. So shafts of anger symbolize divine anger. And Saint Sebastian is seen as the saint who, because he was put to death by arrows, uh, this is now seen as his offering himself as a human shield to absorb God's wrath, that is his arrows, in himself, and therefore to protect humanity from the plague. And so there's a great cult 
of this saint during plague years. He appears in the art. He appears in the, the names of churches. And it's not so far from our own times. In a very sinister way, Jerry Falwell had this idea that HIV AIDS was a divine punishment for a society that tolerated homosexual people in its midst. A horrible distortion of this, but nonetheless, it shows that this divine intervention can also be a kind of demonic intervention. As you reflect on, and, and I realize that we're this is a science program, but I think reflecting on the way that um, a disease is transforming society is reflected in art is also one way in which diseases leave their mark. And another plague that transformed society, of course, was the is the HIV-AIDS epidemic, and it is still going on. And I'm thinking about the art of Keith Haring and David Warnerovich in the time in the 80s and in the 90s. And that art is still quite powerful at capturing what it was like to die alone, to be stigmatized, to be an outcast in society, and to feel like the medical establishment was had just forgotten you. Absolutely. How can they ignore the, the political aspect of, it, of AIDS? And I, you know, what I said to this guy in the Times is, is the fact that I may be dying of AIDS in 1989, is that not political? Is the fact that I don't have health insurance and I don't have access to adequate health care, is that not political? And there was an outpouring of artistic work in various mediums and rent was very powerful. Will I lose my dignity? Will someone care? Will I wake tomorrow from this nightmare? So yes, HIV AIDS also gave rise to this. And we might mention the AIDS quilt that stretched for a mile over the Washington Mall that had popular art. That is, people themselves made a quilt to the people they had lost, honoring them. And then they stitched them together and the whole quilt stretched for a mile. It was a very powerful way of thinking how many lives it seemed endless had been touched by HIV AIDS. And so art, I think, uh, what we've been talking about it, I think it's really fundamental for how, apart from history, art gives us the vocabulary, both in terms of images and expression, and a means to digest and understand the experience. So I think art plays a tremendously important therapeutic role in times of pandemics and living with them afterwards and putting society back together again. And I wouldn't be surprised if COVID has a very major impact at some stage on one or more art movements that emerge. Perhaps it will take the form we memorialize uh, World War I, the people at the same time who were heroes of the Spanish influenza in World War I haven't been memorialized. Perhaps that will be something that will happen, uh, filling up that great oversight with regard to COVID-19. Let's talk about some other ways in which uh, epidemics change society. So in some cases, the way that society responded to epidemics was to become smarter in their preparedness for the next epidemic. And you write that plague, for example, was profoundly transformative this way. Um, for one, the approach 
to public health. Maybe even public health was invented, was born. <laughs> the idea of public health was born out of plague. Yes, I would agree entirely. Public health is a legacy of the plague years. And what happened was that communities devised ways of protecting themselves. And the idea of contagion was born and people thought that there was something not just in the atmosphere, but somehow it was given from one person to another. And the way to prevent that was what we call social distancing, uh, PPE. Uh, they had different names for these. And quarantine was one of those measures because quarantine meant that people you suspect of bringing the disease to your community can be kept at bay for either isolated in buildings or in special institutions. And it was based originally in the Renaissance when it first came into practice. It comes from the word quaranta, which means 40. And if you go back to the Bible, the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Christ was tempted for 40 days. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, before the ark was launched. Um, so there's so many, such a resonance to the number 40. So they thought if they kept people away at bay, as it were, for 40 days, that would mean that after that period, whatever was dangerous about them would somehow have been dispersed and the people would be safe. And it turns out that this is well beyond what we know now as the incubation period for bubonic plague and most other diseases. So it actually was a public health practice that worked. And along with this came the idea that you need public health as a practice and you need a political, you need authorities. And they set up boards of health, or they call them health magistrates, same thing. And then the health magistrates need powers to tax, to have a police force and all this kind of thing. And so suddenly you have the creation of more centralized power. So I don't wish to say that plague caused the early modern state to rise. I don't want to say that. I just say that it was part of the process. It contributed to the conception of what an early modern state might do for people. It's interesting that you use the phrase kept the disease at bay because wasn't the, one of the reasons quarantine was used was to prevent the return of plague by sea from the sailing ships. So literally, ships would be kept in the bay for 40 days because that was a big vector in, in bringing disease into cities. It absolutely was. If you trace how plague came across the Mediterranean, it did so along the trade routes because the ships were transporting rats and the rats had their fleas. And so once the boat reached harbor, then the rats disembarked and took the fleas with them. And the fleas were carrying the microbes that caused the infection. They didn't know that at the time, but by keeping the ship away for 40 days, you could be sure that people who disembarked were harmless. And it turned out to be that that was the case. So this was an effective practice. And you can see if you're keeping ships at bay in the harbor, you do need a centralized authority and you actually need a navy in order to be able to do that effectively, because not all ships want to be kept at bay for 40 days while you uh, turn over their goods in the sun and you imprison them for that period of time. Well, we've been talking about plague, but one of the other big movers of history was smallpox. 
and smallpox gave rise to vaccinations. And can you just remind us, it also did something else that is quite profound, and we'll come to that in a moment. But can you remind us how it gave rise to vaccinations? It's interesting that the discovery was made by Edward Jenner. There were competitors. He wasn't this single person who had a flash of genius. Other people as well were coming towards the idea, but he had a country medical practice, which was very important in his observation, which was that milkmaids, and you could see who had had smallpox, seemed to have fair complexions and not therefore to have been exposed to the disease. And what it turns out is that cowpox, which is not smallpox, but from the same family of diseases, cowpox gives you a crossover immunity to smallpox. And to be clear, cowpox affects cows. It is actually cowpox. Exactly. But it can be transmitted to people and people who have contracted cowpox, like the dairy maids, they preserve their complexions because they don't get smallpox as a disease. So he made this observation. And what if instead of inoculating people with smallpox, which was very dangerous, and some people contracted terrible cases and died, instead to vaccinate them, that's because of the cow comes from the vacas, which is cow. And so to take the cowpox and to vaccinate, that's the new term for what they did with the cowpox. And he, uh, modern ethical standards wouldn't allow this to happen, but he, his first subject was an eight-year-old boy and he vaccinated him with cowpox, awaited for a sufficient amount of time for what he thought the boy would have developed immunity. And then he did what was called a challenge vaccination with the real thing, that is with smallpox itself. And happily, the eight-year-old boy was immune. Do we know that eight-year-old boy's name? I mean, we remember Edward Jenner. I hope there's a statue to that young child somewhere who was an unwilling volunteer in a profound medical experiment. He is, his name is known. I've forgotten it at the moment, I'm sorry to say. But there are, in fact, statues and paintings and posters showing the two of them. And he was the son of Jenner's gardener, as it happens. And the name of that boy, Seth, I've since learned, was James Phipps. One of the unsung heroes of medicine. Uh, I have to contrast it with the, you know, captain goes down with the ship kind of mentality that took over in more recent times, where if you developed a new pharmaceutical, you would try it first on yourself. I don't know if anybody does that anymore either, but maybe better than trying it out on the gardener's kid. There are two themes that come through this part of the interview, and one is the way in which art and literature changes in response to epidemics, and the other is how medicine changes. So we have the innovation of inoculation and vaccine because of smallpox, and and we'll see whether our response to COVID leaves a similar mark in art or in science. It's also the case that we always want to find a reason for bad things that happen to us. That's always the case. I mean, you see that in the tale of the uh, plague saints, right? I mean, that wasn't quite the same as pointing to St. Sebastian and saying, that's the guy responsible. But it was to figure out that if you weren't paying attention to that saint, then maybe you deserve to get the plague. Whereas if you did, you know, if you did honor that saint, maybe you would survive the plague. We just don't want to accept that some things 
might be completely external to our behavior. They just may arise, they, they may just be caused by things we have no control over, and we just don't like that idea. Coming up, medical historian Frank Snowden describes how smallpox and yellow fever played key roles in determining who was enslaved and who was free. We're discussing the epidemics throughout history that changed society. This episode of Big Picture Science is After the Plague. We've learned that pandemics shape culture, religion, and public health, and that they can leave a mark on mental health long after the virus or the bacteria have gone away. But disease can also shape the balance of power. Immunity to disease has played a role in depriving humans of liberty, or in some cases, actually fostering it. We heard that smallpox motivated experiments in inoculation, which led to the development of vaccination. Along with antibiotics and the construction of sewer systems, vaccination has arguably been one of the great successes in improving public health. But smallpox has also played a sinister role in history. Frank Snowden discusses how the tiny variola virus, the virus that gives rise to smallpox, had the power to tighten the European grip on North America by decimating indigenous populations, including on the Caribbean island of Hispaniola. Also, he notes that the virus that causes yellow fever, spread by mosquitoes, helped end French colonial rule in Haiti. Immunity has been a powerful shield. This has to do with differential immunity between two different populations, that is, the Native Americans in the New World and Europeans in the Old World. And after the voyage of Columbus, the two were linked, and that opened up what's called the Columbian Exchange after Christopher Columbus, which meant that microbes exploited this new highway to travel back with the Europeans to Europe or from the Europeans to the New World. And Europeans who had smallpox, who brought it with them, uh, so many were actually immune, so not many died of the disease if there was an outbreak of smallpox, whereas Native Americans had zero herd immunity. It was a virgin soil because it didn't exist in the New World. Smallpox was non-existent. It was brought from Europe unintentionally. This wasn't a plan. The crews and passengers came to the New World and they brought the smallpox with them. And so there was this great differential immunity. The original intention, certainly of the Spaniards, was to subjugate the Native Americans to slavery. Hispaniola, that is what nowadays is, is Haiti, was going to be uh, one of the places, but the Native Americans there, the Arawaks, died off from about a million to about a thousand in just 20 years or so. And so uh, it was necessary to bring people who had smallpox immunity, and they turned instead to Africa. 
So the idea, if I can summarize, is that um, the Europeans brought smallpox over and it killed the indigenous populations and thwarted their plans for enslaving those populations in North America. So it drove the Europeans to find other sources of labor and they turned to Africa because Africans shared an immunity to some of their diseases. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly what I, I wanted to say. But I, I also wanted to add one other point, though, that the Native Americans were dying off. This meant they couldn't be enslaved, but it meant that their land could be taken easily. And so this has played a bigger role than gunpowder in largely clearing the Americas and thereby promoting the European settlement. So disease played a major role in that process. Another infectious disease played a role in ending slavery. Frank, can you tell us how yellow fever helped aid the early 19th century slave rebellion in what is today Haiti? Yes, it's a very good example of how infectious diseases can really alter history and have a big picture impact. The point is that it wasn't yet Haiti, but soon to be Haiti was a French colony. And at the time of the French Revolution, the slaves on Haiti rose up in revolt under Toussaint Louverture and freed themselves. But uh, Haiti was a tremendous, it's hard to believe today, at the time was France's richest colony. And uh, Napoleon was horrified. Uh, he was also had racial attitudes, as many Europeans did. And it was sort of the world turned upside down that a black army had taken over the leading colony, the most important one, the richest one. And he wished to restore social order, racial hierarchies to Haiti. And he wished to reclaim this great source of wealth. So he sent to crush the slave rebellion, uh, one of the great armadas bearing something like 40,000 French soldiers to crush the revolt in Haiti. What he hadn't taken into account, however, was that Haiti and the Caribbean in general had long been known as the white man's grave during the summer months because of yellow fever, to which they had no immunity. The slaves, who were descendants of Africans, on the other hand, possessed some measure of immunity to yellow fever, also to malaria. There were two diseases that afflicted uh, Europeans coming to Hispaniola or to Haiti. And the point was that what we see during the summer of 1803 is a mass die-off of the French army and navy, such that the commander-in-chief wrote back to Napoleon that he could no longer continue or hold out because 85% of his troops were dead, and the other 15% were convalescing in hospital, and he no longer had a fighting army. And so the end result was that the whole armada, the expedition, collapsed in utter ruins and failure. And so Haiti is the first example of decolonization. And they have, in 1804, the proclamation of Haiti as the first free black republic uh, in world history and the end of slavery on the island, which sent shockwaves through the United States, as you might imagine. This was the worst nightmare with slave rebellion. But it had one other major factor, which was the Louisiana Purchase. 
because Napoleon's plan had been to use Haiti as the base for projecting French power back into North America. When he lost Haiti, he realized that plan was impossible. And so he sold to Thomas Jefferson, uh, Louisiana, uh, retreating from North America. And so the United States doubles in its size as a result of this process and becomes the growing power in the Americas and then globally, as we now know. So this was a very important event, this outbreak of yellow fever and malaria in Haiti in 1803-1804. And who could imagine that a virus inside of a mosquito could transform the world power structure that way? And what is also fascinating about this slave rebellion is it wasn't just happenstance that this yellow fever outbreak occurred. The slaves used it to their advantage. They were strategic, knowing that they had this immunity. Maybe they didn't know what immunity was, but they knew that they had this protection against yellow fever. And so they would leave the plantations and run off into the woods, into the jungle, um, knowing that then the, the, the French army would come in looking for them would not be able to find them, and with time would become victims of this disease. So they used the mosquito and this virus, you know, to their advantage. It was part of the strategy. Yes, Toussaint Louverture, the most famous leader of the slave rebellion, uh, was Toussaint Louverture, who was also the commander of the insurgent army that practiced guerrilla warfare against the French. And the point was, though, in Haiti, he was very conscious of this, and he told his troops that they should not engage in large battles with the French. They should save their resources, and the French would die like flies, he said, of disease instead. He was very uh, strategic. Well, finally, Frank, we've been talking about epidemics and treating COVID as an epidemic um, by providing this, this historical background. But if it's not eradicated, if it doesn't go away entirely, it becomes endemic so that the infection is always with us at some base level. And if it does become endemic, how does that shape its lasting effects on society? I would say that if it becomes an endemic disease, uh, that probably means that we're going to need to find ways to live with it so that it doesn't, uh, again, devastate society. And that may take a variety of forms. It may mean developing vaccines every year for boosters the way we do with seasonal influenza. It could take that shape. It could also mean that we reconfigure our society so that we aren't as vulnerable to diseases like that, uh, such as distancing uh, work, new forms of work, hybrid forms of teaching, less crowded public transport. There may be accommodations that we make in modifying the way we live our lives. Uh, those may be things that are part of adjusting to live with this disease, should that become the case. We don't know what the end result of this story is going to be, but there are lots of possible outcomes, and that's, that's one of them. Well, Frank Snowden, thank you so much for this discussion and also for writing this book, Epidemics and Society, because I read it over the course of last year and it provided such important context to a, a scary situation that was unfolding. So thank you both for your writing and for this discussion. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. 
Frank Snowden is a professor emeritus of history and the history of medicine at Yale University and the author of Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present. We thank him for this extended interview. What is the big picture here? As Frank Snowden said, it is not too early to start thinking about the big picture of how epidemics change society and how COVID might change ours. What have we learned from history? Well, I think what you learn from history is that pandemics, which you view in retrospect as something that's an intermittent thing, something that lasts for a couple of years and then has gone away. But what we've seen in this show is that the consequences, you know, there's a long tail, if you will, to pandemics. They can affect things going forward in, in ways that are profound and that, you know, are everlasting. Right. And and he said, Frank Snowden said that in some cases, disease has done more than gunpowder to change society. So these infectious diseases can be powerful movers of history. Well, as we look at the legacy of COVID, um, we don't know what that long-term legacy will be. He gave some suggestions at the very top of the show that it may force us to address radical economic and racial disparities that came up during the pandemic that are still with us. Yeah, that that's certainly true. I think that uh, the other thing that we will be able to say we learned from this pandemic is how to deal with it. The, the, the pandemic was not dealt with very well, particularly in this country. But, and, you know, just looking at the science, there has been, you know, a tremendous success in the rapid development of vaccines. And that's really sort of tooling up for the next pandemic, we'll be able to do it even more quickly. I hope we'll also have the kind of social policies in place that, uh, you know, keep hundreds of thousands of people from dying. Well, we could not do the show without senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I'm the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other things, investigates life on a microscopic scale. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, a big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon. Special thanks to some of our Patreon supporters, Damon T. Ski from Denver, Don Mundus, and Alexander Larson from Trondheim, Norway. Want to hear your name in the credits or get access to exclusive bonus material or even just support this podcast? Well, it's easy to do at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. With your help, the show might even transform society. Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, well, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of the program. And if you haven't already, well, we hope that you will subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. This episode of Big Picture Science is called After the Plague.